Hello, welcome to the Keating Chambers Public Procurement Podcast. I'm David Gollantz, a barrister at Keating Chambers, and I'm joined on this podcast by Charlie Banner QC, also at Keating. And we're going to be discussing Mr. Justice Chamberlain's judgment in Good Law Project and Others and the Secretary of State for Health, 2021 EWHC 346, to claim for judicial review by the Good Law Project and the MPs Caroline Lucas of the Green Party, Deborah Abrahams of Labour and Leila Moran of the Lib Dems. And most people will be aware of this, so I'm not going to go into detail about the facts. But it's relevant to bear in mind that three allegations of fact were not disputed. The Secretary of State had awarded several billion pounds worth of PPE contracts without advertisement. And he had not published contract award notices within the time prescribed by Regulation 50. Uh, and that was a breach of the regulations from which there was no basis for exemption. The claimants also alleged, and these allegations were disputed, that the Secretary of State unlawfully failed to comply with the government's own transparency policy regarding the publication of abbreviated contract award notices on Contracts Finder, and had a clandestine policy of deprioritizing such publication. So that's the background, but the real meat of the judgment is the question of standing. Given that the Good Law Project and the MPs were not economic operators, did they have sufficient interest in the observance of procurement law to bring a judicial review claim since they couldn't bring one under the regulations. Charlie, do you want to talk a bit about standing and where that comes in? Thanks, David, and um, hello um, to our listeners. Um, Yes, so standing, uh, the context of standing for judicial review um, is derived from Section 31, Subsection 3 of the Senior Courts Act 1981. That makes clear that an applicant Um, can't bring a claim for judicial review unless they have, quote, a sufficient interest in the matter to which the application relates. Um, And that's uh, those words, sufficient interest in the matter to which the application relates. Those um, have given the legislative basis uh, for debates about whether a claimant does or doesn't have standing in any particular judicial review claim. And I should probably say it bears upon two stages of the judicial review process. It's uh, It bears upon whether somebody should get permission to bring a claim for judicial review in the first place. And in fact, that's actually the context in which the Senior Courts Act uh, refers to the standing test. But it also bears on the question of whether relief should be granted. In other words, whether even if at the full um, substantive stage of the judicial review process, the court was to find um, that there was some error or errors of law, um, whether the court should do anything about it, grant any any remedy or relief. Uh, and it's that latter context uh, where the issue arose in the Good Law Project case because permission had already been granted. And indeed, that's uh, on, a, on all fours with the previous case of Wild, uh, in which I was involved in, where again, a permission had been granted, but the standing issue was deliberately left to the substantive hearing because it required um, some meaty consideration of the case law. Yeah, yeah. It's fair to say, I think, isn't it, that, that there's been a, a sort of push and pull about standing in, in procurement cases for well, a good many years. I, I was looking at um, two cases, two judgments in 1994, um, which... Uh, one in the Privy Council um, and and one in the High Court, and these were uh, Mercury Energy in the Privy Council, New Zealand case, and Mass Energy in Birmingham. Um, And in New Zealand, of course, at that time, there was no statutory regulation of procurement. 
um, and more or less none in 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 England, except that there was this um, environmental um, uh, Protection Act 1990, which required councils to tender out their waste disposal services. Um, but there was nothing about how you did procurement. They just said you had to procure a, a, a contractor. And in both of those, um, <clears throat> the, the court just said, well, this just isn't public law. It's just, it's not reviewable. Admittedly, in the New Zealand case, they also made some very caustic remarks about the factual merits of the claimant's case. But nevertheless, they, they took the opportunity, essentially, to say this is not a fit topic for, for judicial review. Um, and uh, it, it was in that case that Lord Justice Glidewell said um, that uh, unless there was a breach of the Environmental Protection Act, which required the, the, the authority to tender its uh, waste disposal services, um, then uh, he said judicial review has no further place in this dispute, uh, which he characterised as a commercial dispute between a successful and an unsuccessful tenderer. And I think that remained really the sort of the baseline um, of the court's approach, even after uh, public procurement regulations were introduced, which was that um, if you were going to bring a judicial review as opposed to a claim under the regs, then you pretty much had to show either corruption or bribery or some form of misfeasance or even misconduct rather than just the, the sort of failure to observe the rules. Yes, and it's interesting that the early case law seems to treat the issue of standing almost hand in hand with the issue of is the decision one which is actually amenable to judicial review at all? Yes, even if somebody did have um, standing, that's, um, that's exactly right, yeah. and, and that probably reflects to some degree the uh, less advanced state of public law generally um, in the. Um, early to mid-90s compared to the position uh, now. Uh, I mean, for example, around that same time, I can't remember the precise date, there was a, another case um, called Molinaro and, and Kensington right. and Chelsea, uh, which concerned whether decisions of a, um, of a local authority in the landlord and tenant context would be amenable to judicial review, an issue which isn't still now completely resolved and leaving aside human rights considerations where the position is different because of um, the way the Human Rights Act is is drafted, um, it has historically been the position that a, a local authority, when acting in a private capacity, for example, as a landlord or, for example, as a party to a contract, um, isn't exercising public functions. And it's the exercise of public functions that's the, the litmus test for whether something is amenable to judicial review in the first place. And that then has, in the procurement context, um, has led to um, some debate, mostly since the 90s, away from the courts and in commentary, as to whether um, the exercise of um, powers or is it really responsibilities and duties under the uh, under the uh, successive regulations in the field of procurement, is that the exercise of public functions or, or actually is it simply uh, all bearing upon the tortious duty uh, owed to economic operators? That's right, yeah. And I think we'll we'll probably come back to this, but but it's it's always struck me. I mean, and I do mean always since I started doing procurement law in about two thousand and one, that um, that the courts and to some extent English lawyers have a lot of trouble getting their heads around what I would regard as the, the plain and obvious fact that public procurement regulation is a matter of public law, 
because it's not just about conferring on economic operators the right to sue for lost profits. It's about protecting the internal market, or it was until, <laughs> until very recently about protecting, now it's about protecting the UK internal market, but um, it was about protecting the internal market. It was also, though, about, um, it, and it's, this is expressed in, in the directives, making the most efficient use of public money. I mean, that's, that's I think, recital two of the current uh, public directive. Uh, and it's about preventing corruption, which, again, is expressed in the recitals 126. It says exactly that. So these are these are functions which are not just about, um, you know, contracting or not contracting. And they're certainly not um, about grant just about granting rights to to economic operators any more, I suppose, than, for example, the the uh, prohibition on various kinds of discrimination in the Equality Act 2010 is just there to grant, confer a right to damages on people who do get discriminated against. It's also an engine of public policy, which just happens to be enforced by tort actions. There we are. I said we'd come back to it later, but we won't now because I've said it all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, all, all I can say is I, I completely agree. It, it's re, it regulates the governance of, of public um, authorities, mm. and that is quintessentially the terrain of, of public law rather than private law. Yeah. Yes, I think that, that is pretty pretty clear. Um, so we got as far as um, as the sort of the early cases, didn't we? And I don't think we. Mm. I'd say in the two thousands, they're sort of that's when we started to develop two streams of jurisprudence, isn't it? Because we had Cathro in twenty oh one, where Mr Justice Richards first formulated this um, test. Uh, of standing for a non-economic operator for judicial review, where you said you had to be, you had to have an a, an interest in the observance of public procurement law, not just in the outcome of a procurement. Uh, so in that case, I think that was that was a planning case. In fact, wasn't it? I think um, it, it quite quite a few of them have been. Yes. Um, because um, by definition, really, if if you're in the terrain of of judicial review in the procurement context, the the yes. complainant. Is not an economic operator, uh, and uh, once you exclude economic operators, the next most likely category of people to be aggrieved at some kind of procurement decision or avoidance of procurement tends to be um, local residents or aggrieved developers annoyed about some kind of development contract. That's right. So, um, and as was the case in Cathro, where some residents didn't want uh, the uh, construction of a community centre, I think it was, to go ahead near them. Um, and and they claimed that uh, the uh, the contract had not been properly awarded, um, and in particular, I think they they claimed that the um, the council had used the negotiated procedure, which wasn't actually available. Uh, and the judge said, "Well, that may or may not be the case, but um, even if it were, the you have no no sufficient interest in adherence to." Um, to procurement law, you just don't want this to go ahead. And I think he used some, uh, yes, he said they have seized on the point simply as a fallback way of trying to stop the project, which also was, I think, the first time that somebody introduced the question, apparently introduced the question of motivation as being relevant mm. to standing. That did you did you have a good motive or not? I'm not sure that that's actually what he meant. Um, and mm. this sort of pops up later as a, as a subject of discussion, doesn't it? Whether Whether the claimant's motivation is relevant or not. Um, but it's certainly there's that you could interpret that sentence as, as meaning that uh, that 
having a, an ulterior or parallel motive weakened their claim to sufficient interest. Yeah, yes, that's right. I, it, when you were saying that, it reminded me of a very lengthy part of the oral argument in the Wild case, which we'll come to later, which I argued where the relevance or otherwise of motive featured very heavily in, in the discussion. I think actually putting it back in a sort of black letter context, it, it probably all goes to what, as I said before, the Section 31 of the Senior Courts Act, sufficient interest in the matter to which the application or now the, the matter to which the claim relates. And it's whether you take a broad or narrow view of what's meant by the matter to which the application relates. Yeah. Do you take it, do, are you looking for an interest in, in the subject matter of the contract, i.e. if it's a development agreement, you've got an interest in stopping the development or the development happening the right way? Or is it is the matter to which the application relates the upholding of procurement law, the, the actual award for the contract? And I think as we go through the cases, it, it's... Um, the way you look at those statutory words that probably underpins the um, the differing views, sure. differing judgments. Sure, and and yes. So I mean, in a sense, yeah. The the idea that that if you say, well, the matter is just is adherence to procurement law, or is the means by which this contract has been or is going to be awarded, um, then that's a, as it were a much narrower target than is this development or the variation of this contract or whatever it is a good idea um mm. and uh, yeah we we should try and get to to wild fairly quickly <laughs> because uh mr justice dubbs remarks about motivation in that were, were quite interesting um what you mm. might call his clarificatory remarks i think I suppose just before we do get to the the really exciting stuff when we can talk about uh, Chandler and uh, uh, Wild and Gottlieb and um, uh, a good law project, we, we probably should just briefly sort of talk about or, or at least acknowledge um, Men I Collect, Gamma and Cookson and Clegg in the mid-2000s, all I think within the judgments anyway, within about sort of a year or 18 months of each other. It's funny how these cases come along in clumps, isn't it? Um, mm. And I mean, looking at those, the they're all slightly different. I think in Gamma's, I'm right in saying it was acknowledged that the regs didn't apply at all, um, or that may have been men I collect because with respect to those cases, I always forget which is which. But but the point really was that um, was what the, the judicial comments, I think, more than the substance of the cases. And the judicial commentary, I think, is, um, is summed up by uh, uh, the judgment in men I collect where the judge said... Um, the tender evaluation process was an essentially commercial process. So we're back to this idea that it's it's really just grubby commercial disputes and not fit for the admin court at all. Um, and he says, where commercial processes such as these are likely to be subject to review um, are such as they are in the reported cases, namely bribery, corruption, implementation of unlawful policy and the like. And in such cases, there is a true public law element. Um, and uh, But he said, where... Uh, where it was just the question of who'd got the contract and wh whether that process had been uh, compliant or not, um, that wasn't really a fit subject for judicial review. And similarly, in, in the other cases around that time, although, as I say, there were technical differences, um, Cookson and Clegg, I think, failed because it was held that they could have brought their claim under the regulations. So uh, they it was a sort of misuse of judicial review. But that was the court's approach. And and that's really what changed, I think, in Chandler. I don't know whether you'd agree. Yes, that's right. So Chandler, which is the um, the only one of these cases, I think, that's 
um, gone to the Court of Appeal. I know the Court of Appeal's observations on this were Obiter. That's right. Um, <laughs> Obiter, but the most significant part of the judgment. <laughs> it, it, exactly, ironically so. And, and it was, um, as Mr Justice Chamberlain said, a, a, a very high-powered composition of, of the of the Court of Appeal. So in, in essence, it, this has been treated as gospel and the High Court decisions later have been about interpreting what the court meant in, in Chandler. Chandler was a case where... Um, it was a mother of, of school-aged children being a judicial review of a procurement decision in the context of uh, a new academy school. And, and Mrs Chandler was opposed in principle to academy schools, which at the time were um, politically controversial. Um, and the Court of Appeal dismissed the procurement ground uh, uh, substantively, but went on to consider whether Mrs Chandler would have had standing in the event that she'd had a good claim. Um, and the um, the points of principle set out by Lady Justice Arden, but with the uh, agreement rest of the court, is the, the court in- inclined to the view that an individual, and I'm quoting the judgment, who has a sufficient interest in compliance with the procurement regime in the sense that he is affected in some identifiable way, but who isn't an economic operator, can have standing. So the first gateway, if you like, to standing is sufficient interest in compliance with the regime in the sense that the claim is affected in some identifiable way. Um, Further, the court went on to say a second gateway would be where the gravity of a departure from public law obligations in the procurement context would justify the grant of a public law remedy in any event. And and in the Good Law Project, which we'll look at at, uh, in due course, Mr Justice Chamberlain rightly said they were two separate gateways through to standing. Um, Most of the case law until Good Law Project has focused um, subsequently on on the first gateway, what's meant by a sufficient interest in compliance with the procurement regime in the sense of the claimant being affected in some identifiable way. The difficulty of that formulation, actually, from the Court of Appeal is it's really just a a rehash of what the legislation says, sufficient interest in the matters to to which the claim relates. But that still begs the question, what's meant by an identifiable way? Yes, Uh, And I'm not sure it really adds very much to what the legislation says. No, I think it's it, and uh, in a sense, it's it's just narrowing the gate, isn't it? It's saying mm. and because it's going to be pretty rarely, um, if one looks for it, say at the case which, which in a sense followed Unison, uh, followed Chandra. I'm sorry, the Unison case <laughs> where the trade union Unison um, claimed judicial review of Wiltshire Primary Care Trusts outsourcing of jobs without a competition, um, and uh, the. Uh, the judge held that they didn't have sufficient interest because it didn't make any difference to the trade union or to its members how those jobs were outsourced any more than it made a difference to Mrs Chandler um, how the contract for for an academy school was awarded. In both cases, what they objected to was the substance of the decision, not the manner in which it had been implemented. Um, Mm. But... Just briefly on Chandra, I, there's something which has confused me, and I, th- I think I've got it now, but, but welcome. You can tell me whether I've got this right. Um, it, 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 in um, paragraph 77 of the Chandra judgment, Lady Justice Arden says, it would drive a coach and horses through the requirement for standing if the importance of the issue justified standing in such circumstances. It would mean that people with no real interest in the question could bring judicial review proceedings. But then later on, she talks in, I think, in the next paragraph, she she says that thing that you quoted about the gravity of the departure. So what I suppose she means is um, 
that you can have a very important issue, an issue of enormous public importance, um, but um, a claimant won't have standing because of that. They have then to show a grave departure from public law mm. principles in the way that important decision has been made. But it's quite a fine distinction, and I'm not sure that it's always easy, really, to make that distinction in, in, in a given case. When one goes back to something like the Pogau Dam case, the World Movement Organization, um, bringing successfully a judicial review of the Foreign Office handing out DOSH um, for, for the wrong purpose. Um, some of the judicial commentary in that looks to me as though they're saying, well, this is just really important. <laughs> Sorry to be sceptical, but um, anyway, that'll have to hang as a sort of open question, I think, unless you want to close it. Well, I, I, I agree, and I think you're right. I think the distinction is probably um, that the the second gateway, it looks at the gravity of the departure as opposed to the, the gravity of the issue. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's confined to corruption, but obviously corruption is the paradigm scenario yes. where um, the gravity, no matter how interesting or otherwise the issue is, corruption would be a sufficiently grave um allegation if it had prima facie merit to justify um the grant of standing in, in many cases under under gateway two sure sure so anyway there we are at Chandra court of appeal um as you say the only court of appeal authority on this question in in the context of procurement um two gateways and um i guess we then get to gottlieb don't we in 2015 mm, um, yes uh, a strange judgment in, in many ways uh because Standing was, so I understand from some of the people who argued that case, um, in front and centre of the arguments, but it doesn't really get a huge amount of consideration in the judgment. It is dealt with fairly briskly, one would have to say, isn't it? Yeah. I never know whether with those brisk things is, is whether the judge was thinking, I'm not going to spend too long on this because I might come unstuck, um, or I'm not going to spend too long on this because it's bloody obvious. You know, it's good. it could be either, couldn't it? True. <laughs> so, and, and got... Gottlieb was it was another planning case, yes, um, and, and not the last one where um, the, this concerned a. It was a variation um, to a development agreement that had already been concluded, yeah. And there was no, there had been no competition at all for the first award, um, and, and nothing at all, and therefore I think that had um, coloured the judge's mind a little bit. In terms of context, and um, I think it was Mr. Gottlieb, as opposed to Miss Gottlieb. It was Mr. Uh, yes, Kim Alexander Gottlieb, a, a councillor yes. and a member of the Residents Association, which that was right. uh, was opposed to the variation. And and he was he his he stated um, that his interest was that if there had been effectively a re-procurement rather than the variation of the existing terms, but on more preferential. Um, terms uh, for the developer if there'd been a re-procurement that would have generated uh, a further refinement of thinking on the development because different developers might have offered different um, different variations of the project and that would have led to a better scheme or at least could have led to a better scheme that's how um, he framed his interest 
Uh, and that was enough to persuade Mrs. Justice Lang that he uh, he should have standing. She said that he seeks what the procurement process is intended to provide, namely an open competition to allow Winchester to select the development which best fulfills its needs. Yeah, I was always a little surprised that that, that wasn't, or, or a similar sort of argument, wasn't as far as I know canvassed in unison, because it did seem to me that, that the judge rather, again, rather briskly dismissed the possibility that the trade union would have had an, an interest in um in adherence to to public procurement or in the sense that um, if the thing had been done properly, there would have been an advertisement which would have alerted everybody to what was going on and they would have had the opportunity then to make representations. They wouldn't have, perhaps they could even have constituted themselves as an economic operator uh, and and put in a tender, who knows? Obviously, it's a little bit imponderable. There's a rather lot of if this and if that. But nevertheless, it's, it's not nonsense to say that one of the most, and this is really at the heart of, of Good Law Project as well, that one of the living, beating hearts of procurement is the obligation to advertise what you're going to do and what you've done. Um, and in cases where there has been no advertisement, I think it's quite difficult for the defendant to say that somebody who objects has no sufficient interest because surely they can say, well, you know, if this had been properly advertised, who knows? But among other things, we would have had input. Other contractors might have come, whatever. Um, Yeah, so anyway, but Mr. Gottlieb did have standing. um, And um, uh, that was uh, one of the the interesting little quirks about Gottlieb, which we might come to is relevant now, is that um, permission had been refused on the papers uh, by one Mr. Justice Dove. Um, (laughs) And... I didn't know. That. Yes, actually. granted on <laughs> renewal by by Mr. Justice Lindblom or Miss Justice Lindblom. I'm not sure whether Lindblom is male or female. But um, so anyway, so I always tend to think of Wilde as, as Dove's revenge. But um, that may be a little ah, un- unjust. I, I had no idea. <laughs> so Wilde, um, for the uninitiated, that was a um, another variation case. Um, so this this uh, case I know about because I acted. You for, were for the interested um, party, um, weren't you? That's right, Cress Nicholson. Yes, and. Um, uh, it concerned a, a development agreement for quite considerable regeneration of Farnham Town Centre, um, and which is in the area of Waverley. There was an existing uh, development agreement due to the economy um, uh, downturning in the early 2010s. Um, the development had become unviable with the level of affordable housing uh, that had been um, contracted in, and so Crest sought to renegotiate so they didn't have to provide as much. Um, it always seems it to me that whatever happens to the economy, the amount of affordable housing somehow becomes unaffordable for the developer. Odd that, but go on. <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment. No, you comment. couldn't possibly comment, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they renegotiated. To be fair to, to Wavy, the, in the public officer's report, um, they they referred to a summary of, of advice from Nigel Giffen, who advised them, you know, making very clear that um, whether or not this met the Regulation 72 press text um, test was um, highly debatable. Um, uh, and, and they but they decided politically that they ought to go ahead with this because it was an important scheme and they wanted to crack on with it. Um, so they publicly faced up to the fact this might arguably not be lawful, but they thought they'd, they'd have a go and see if they could defend a claim. Um, a, a claim then was made by um, a, a two councillors um, and three members of local civic societies who had opposed the, the planning permission and the compulsory purchase order that had previously been uh, made right. and confirmed 
um, to deliver this scheme. Um, and um, permission for GAR was granted, but without the judge on their papers grappling with the standing objection made by Waverley and my clients. So we asked the court to um, re um, consider the order so that we could run standing at the substantive hearing. Because normally, if if, a, if somebody has faced a standing objection at the permission stage and that's been rejected at the permission stage, you couldn't re-argue it sure. at the substantive hearing. So that was um, allowed by the court, and they heard standing as a preliminary issue, which I think probably worked in favour of Waverley and Crest, because then the, the judge didn't have to get into the merits of the case, whereas Gottlieb was a case which had quite a lot of merits. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, and and that I think probably coloured Mrs Justice Lang's view of standing. So the judgment in Wilde was only looking at the question of standing. There was also a distinguishing feature on the facts, which again I think probably played on Dove, um, Mr Justice Does Nine, which was by the time of the substantive hearing, there'd been a, a veto notice published in the OJU, and that hadn't teased out any uh, whiff of of complaint let alone claim from any economic operators which enabled us to say uh, in the high court uh, at the substantive hearing uh, an open competition to achieve nothing yes because no one is interested yes the market interested in this yeah. uh, which is it's only really because points up one of yeah. one of the great weaknesses of course of any regime of what we've agreed as public law which is has to be enforced by private action which is that if you don't have yes. any private party who wants to enforce it um, then it goes unenforced, and and um, I think the, uh, the I mean that that was acknowledged, wasn't it? In in the case I referred to earlier, the quite old case of of world development movement, uh, the Pergau Dam case, where <clears throat> among other things, the court took expressly into account the fact that there was no other responsible challenger. Uh, so you know, unless this challenge was allowed, unless world development uh, movement was afforded standing, then then this whole clearly quite um, grave allegation of misuse of, of uh, mm. uh, uh, international aid funds would, would just go unexplored. So, sorry, back back to Wilde. Yes, no, exactly. But um, and here, also, we turned that argument on its head and said, well, here, there could have been a better place challenger, but all the potentially better place challenger in the market weren't bothered. Um, so we're in sort of busybody territory as opposed to uh, people, um, people, genuinely trying to uphold the procurement regime and that's how the argument was very really framed but of course it was still Gottlieb which on its face um, was inconsistent with our um, our analysis so we argued that it was plainly wrong because although high court judgments have some precedent effect it is permissible for a, a high court um, judge to depart from a finding of an earlier high court judge if they're satisfied it's plainly wrong yeah. um, <clears throat> which is a tall um, a, a tall hurdle um, but one which occasionally is surmounted. And so we went, we went back, back to Chandler and said it's got to be a sufficient interest in upholding the procurement regime and a, a, an interest in blocking the development per se or delaying the development isn't enough. Um, and that analysis was was uh, upheld by Mr Justice Dove. And he said really, moti- in terms of well, whether there's some ulterior motive beyond which the claimant's estate doesn't really... Uh, Matthew, you you look at it objectively, but objectively, um, uh, an an interest in um, matters that are not truly procurement-related matters um, 
isn't sufficient. And and where the judgment really ended up, certainly my reading of it and synthesis of it, was you had to have some kind of indirect skin in the game. So you may not be an economic operator who actually has you know, direct skin in the game because you you either did or, or could have um, made a bid for the relevant contract, um, but you'd be either in the category of a sort of um, derivative interest, so a joint venture partner, a major shareholder, a would-be subcontractor, sure. that sort of somebody who who would somebody who would have benefited if, if the, or might have benefited yeah. if the thing had been done exactly. done lawfully yeah exactly yes. so sort of derivative interest and that was always sort of, or a representative interest yeah. so like the law society yeah. so you you a party that has some kind of represents um economic operations even if you aren't yourself and that those kinds of interests would comply because they had um real interest in upholding the procurement regime as opposed to um interest in things which may be affected by yeah. who wins or who yeah. loses. Uh, and that was distinct from Gottlieb. And that was that was really where I think um, Wilde ended up. Yeah. Um, wasn't any application permission to appeal. So we don't know what the Court of Appeal would have thought of it. Sure. I think the um, the thing that uh, is always in, in the balance in, in these kinds of cases, isn't it, is um, you could say, you know, if you adopted what, what we were saying earlier, that, that uh, the public procurement regime is not just about affording rights to economic operators. It's about protecting the public purse, protecting the internal market, preventing corruption, uh, that every any, any taxpayer, any citizen has, has a sufficient interest in those things. But then you get back to the sort of the, the numerous cases where, where the court has said, yeah, but actually you, that's not enough. Um, it has to be a bit more than just the interest any citizen would have. Um, and... Um, I think that's always going to be a matter of degree, isn't it? Maybe that's why the, that that formulation of sufficient interest, uh, leaving what is sufficient uh, open to further definition in in every particular case. It's a bit like reasonable, isn't it? It's like it's rather the, well, the length of the Lord Chancellor's yeah. foot is involved. Um, uh, you know that 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 that's a way of dealing with that issue. That sometimes you're going to want to give standing to people, uh, and in other cases not, and it may be quite just difficult. To make an abstract definitional distinction between them. Absolutely, a point that, that's relevant in that context is um, you know, the breadth of standing for judicial review. I think is, is different depending on the statutory context. So one point made against yep. us in Wild was well, look in the planning and environment context, which is the broad sectoral context in which Wild arose. Standing is very provided you've made some kind of objection. If you haven't, then then it's very hard to have standing. If you, provided you've made some kind of objection. It doesn't really matter how close you live to the site or, or, or how vigorous your objection was, whether you got financial interest, because planning, you know, planning decisions relate to the environment. Yeah. And we sort of we all have a stake in the environment. So it's very, very broad. And the World Development Movement um, case is, is sort of reflective of that. There's a case called Edwards, for example. It used to be the case before protected cost orders that affected that the claimants listeners would find find somebody who qualified for legal aid. Yes. <laughs> And the case we brought in their name, even if they weren't the real you know, force behind um, local objections. Um, and a number of cases have, have, have tested that and said that's absolutely fine. But with the way I put it in, in uh, Wild was, well, the matter to which the claim relates here is not as broad as the environment in which we all have a stake. It's procurement in which only certain people have a stake. Uh, and that was the analysis Mr Justice Dove Broadly accepted. Yeah, yeah. How far do you think all this is really just about floodgates? That that there's a because what is it? Two hundred and ninety billion pounds a year are spent through public procurement in the UK. 
that there's a bit of a worry that that you you know you basically could keep the admin court busy all the time just to challenge people saying well i don't like the way that money's been spent i i think that's right there's a certain irony there isn't it that um the only lawyers who don't like to be kept busy are the judges <laughs> <laughs> yes that just you have less of a problem with that <laughs> <laughs> yes i wouldn't have a problem at all um so good so wild and wild i think you know one felt went pretty close to just like knocking jr on the head for for non-economic operators um and Cookson and Clegg had already knocked it on the head for economic operators. So it, it was it was kind of, it's a regs claim or it's nothing, really. Yeah. Uh, there might be the occasional, uh, very, very occasional case that would s- manage to squeeze through the narrow gap left by Mr. Justice Dove, but, but it was going to be pretty rare. Um, and it did seem to me, I, I, I don't ask you to agree with this because you're still sort of basking in the glow of victory, but um, it did seem to me that that in the same way that Mrs Justice Lang in Gottlieb might have um, passed rather briskly over arguments about standing, so Mr Justice Dove didn't perhaps spend very much time, if any, actually, on the second limb of, of Chandler and the question of the gravity mm. of, of a departure mm. from, from uh, the legal obligations. To me, I, I will st- I'll stand up for, for Mr Justice Dove in this respect is because uh, that's a point that Mr Justice Chamberlain makes in Good Law Project is, is Mr Justice Dove writes out limb two and the sufficient gravity. From recollection, and I haven't had a chance to go back and look at the skirtons, I think that the claimants conceded that they they couldn't bring themselves oh. within the second and, and therefore, in a sense, to be fair to the judge, he was only deciding that which he was asked to decide. This was a, a limb one case. And so nothing he said could be taken right. to have precluded to. I'm 90% sure of that, but I, I do confess I haven't had a chance to go back and look at the skeletons. It, it would be helpful if judges would, would um, record these hats in their judgments <laughs> right. for future lawyers who are seeking to rely or, 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 or um, depart from their, the burden of their judgment. But I'm just looking at, um, at the, the wild judgment on screen at the moment and uh, the only reference to gravity is is in the quote from Chandler. He doesn't then go on to discuss it, as far as I can see. But if if that wasn't uh, if that wasn't an issue, then that would be a perfectly reasonable explanation. But anyway, it did seem rather to knock knock Jr. on the head. I think we we agree with that. Yeah, I I agree. And actually, indeed, you know, uh, Wild came out only a few months before the Faraday judgment, which obviously mm. you know increased the procurement risk. In the development context, but my standard line in you know publicly and privately um, was you know whilst Faraday increases the risk, Gottlieb you know, reduces the risk of, any, of anybody actually doing anything about an unlawful <laughs> non-procurement, um, and so um, that the added risk in Faraday may may still not be sufficient to to require anybody to change their course of course of action. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My own suspicion. Sorry, go on. That's changed. Now that's changed a bit, of course, with good law projects. Yes, yes. I one of the one. Of, this is sort of perhaps more a thing for for towards the end of of our chat, but I guess we are sort of getting there. But I, I do wonder how far what with the pressure on government to build more houses and um, to revive the economy. God knows after COVID. Um, and our departure from the EU, I, I wonder what regime 
there will be around procurement of, of regeneration and development in future. It does seem to me, I, like you, I mean, although I have no background as a planning lawyer, but plan, uh, planning questions and, and questions of the lawfulness of development contracts have been a mainstay of my practice for probably 10 years, um, mm. very frequently consulted either by local authorities or by developers, um, usually uh, asking not so much in, in the context of litigation as, as litigation risk and saying, you know, have we managed to circumvent the rules effectively here? Uh, yes. To which the answer is almost <laughs> invariably no, but if you manage it right, you'll probably get away with it. Um, exactly. Uh, but one does begin to think that this really is an area that, that needs its own regime, uh, mm. in a sense, clearer, possibly stricter, possibly less strict, but but clearer as to what the rules really are, uh, you know, especially as you and I have talked about in the past in cases where the developer owns some land um, mm. or the land that, that's needed. Um, and it, it, it seems absurd to have to advertise. And, you know, one just gets into this whole yeah. mess of rather weird arguments um, and being mindful also of, uh, was it Advocate General Mengozzi? I don't want to credit the wrong AG, but who who, who wrote um, the opinion in the um, Kingdom of Spain IAP's case where he said, be careful of being too strict, O Court of Justice, about applying uh, uh, the, the directive because, um, you know, you may kill the development goose that lays the golden eggs of free stuff. So, you yes. know, it, no, I, I agree. It's, it's interesting that we, as, we, as we talked about in the Green Paper a couple of weeks ago, um, the, the Green Paper doesn't really address issues of scope. Or anything no, like that's that. right. I was slightly surprised. I was expecting to see something. Yes. Like the two things I had expected to see were scope and, and sufficient seriousness. But that's for another day. Uh, um, so I suppose sorry that was me rambling off on a on a particular little obsession of my own for which I apologise. Um, but but so we've 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 got to the end of Wild and now comes drum roll the exciting uh, case of Good Law Project. Um, mm. And uh, Charlie, I said a bit at the top about you know what was in issue and so forth. So I think that's we're there on that. Do you want to sort of sketch out what what was said about standing? Yes. So remember, uh, as David said uh, at the beginning, there were um, two categories of claimants. So the first claimant was Good Law Projects, and uh, everybody probably knows um, who they are. Um, a not not for profit campaign group that, that seeks to use the law to hold government to account effectively. And then there were um, various MPs, three MPs from different political parties, and the outcome was different for those two categories. So the Good Law Project uh, were found to have had standing. Um, indeed, the court granted them relief. Um, the, it appears that, that Mr Justice Chamberlain thought they would have qualified um, under both gateway, both gateways, plural. Um, he, um, having pulled together sort of his view of the case law, he thought that Mr Justice Dove had gone um, too far in, in Wild. Um, and in particular, he thought that... Um, Mr. Jones, as we've said already, had had failed to grapple with the second gateway, the sufficient gravity um, of the breaches. In relation to the gravity of the breaches, what, what Mr. Justice Chamberlain said at paragraph 104, 104 of the judgment is that these relate to contracts worth several billions of pounds. I think the total number of contracts awarded where there had been some actual or alleged failure of, of publication 
um, was something in the region of £17 billion, pounds, if I remember. It's ar- around that, yeah. And, and most of those were awarded without procurement, relying on the um, emergency provisions of Regulation 32. So there's a lot of money being given to um, two uh, contractors um, without procurement, and I think it's a matter of record in the judgment that some of those were companies which hadn't provided the nature, <laughs> the relevant nature. Yes, I think everybody's favourite is is the um, the the, sweet, the, sweet, the one that did sweets and then did PPE. Yes, and, uh, and the other is the, the financial services company in Mauritius. But apart from that, let's carry on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think again, I think I think there are references to the being VIP um vip lanes for fast tracking consideration again it's a matter of record i think some of those organizations had um had connections with government should we put it in that neutral way so there was a i think all of those uh preyed on mr justice chambers mind he said there's a pleaded allegation that there was a deliberate policy on the part of secretary of state not to uh publish award notices in time that allegation failed but nonetheless it was part of the claim so it was considered by the court there was a sufficiently powerful public interest and sufficient importance not lots and lots of money and concerns about um in general terms propriety um, that that would have justified gateway too mr justice chamber didn't simply uh, rely upon the second gateway the sufficient gravity he also went on to say at paragraph 99 um c that uh, mr justice dove had uh wrongly read Chandler as meaning that it was a precondition of standing the claimant could show that he was affected in a specific identifiable way i.e had to have some kind of skin in the game right. as opposed to having a interest so i think again the the debate the difference in that first gateway is about a uh, the different judges interpretation of of what the matter to which the claim relates and what's the sure. what what kind of uh, interest you need to have um and and so it wasn't it wasn't um prerequisite that there needed to be some kind of financial or other commercial interest in the in the decision yeah abroad i, I don't know what you think about this i mean it, it does seem to me though that the the point we were touching on before in chandler about the distinction between the importance of the decision uh as not um being sufficient to, to confer standing but the gravity of a departure being sufficient, that this is rather a stark case because, as we, as you say, we're talking about tens of billions of pounds of expenditure um, being uh, being spent without uh, uh, advertised procurement, uh, and then a failure, an acknowledged failure, to publish contract award notices afterwards, um, and. Um, it does seem to me a little questionable whether the certainly the failure to publish contract award notices, which was actually the the, the subject, I think, of, of good law project. I mean, of this particular case, uh, they were not challenging the failure to advertise. They were failing uh, to to um, they were challenging the failure to advertise contract award notices. Um, whether that would actually qualify as a sufficiently grave departure i mean just failing to awarding a contract is one thing and and failing to publish a notice saying you've done so i would agree is is it is grave because it it undermines transparency but actually they had published them most of them um uh just very late um Mm. and so it would be difficult wouldn't it if you were a judge to say well these are tens of billions of pounds which may have been spent illegally, but 
but that's not a ground that doesn't confer standing. Um, so I, I don't know whether whether there was perhaps some elision of those two mm. um, those two ways of understanding what has happened. I think that's right. And although Mr. Justice Chamberlain separated out in his analysis of the law the two different gateways, when it comes to discussion, there is a, a slight blurring of his analysis under under each gateway. Um, I think also a point that, that clearly did trouble him was that um, what was under challenge in this case, Good Law Project, wasn't an individual procurement decision. Right. Um, which meant two things. Firstly, the, the by definition, couldn't really be a direct impact on any claimant because it was a systemic challenge. It wasn't a, a challenge to a particular claim. So in a sense, the the strict sort of biblical interpretation of the first gateway that uh, the court had in, in Wilde couldn't be applied um, literally in the context of a systemic challenge. Um, and secondly, it meant that there wasn't really a, um, a likely alternative challenger. Yes. Um, because um, there was no economic operator um, as well placed as there would have been in the wild case had any economic operators been interested in challenging that scheme. So um, I think that um, gives this case a, a, a unique sure. uh, flavour as well. I, I'm in no position to um, to know this from, from my own knowledge, but I know that the Good Law Project um, did say in, in, in public uh, on a... Um, uh, sort of public um, Zoom meeting, which I attended, uh, that they had looked for economic operators um, who might mm-hmm. want to bring a claim, um, because of course they could have they could have really sunk the ship if they'd succeeded with a with a declaration of ineffectiveness, for example, because of non-advertisement, mm-hmm. uh, and that they had been told expressly that um, no economic operator wanted to challenge the government because they they thought they'd never work in this town again. Which you know takes us right back to that problem we were talking about before, which is uh, if you try to enforce public law duties through private law action, you do rely on there being somebody who's willing to put their head above the par- parapet and have a go. Right. The, the difficulty is where does this where where does all this leave us? Well, it's the pick and mix. It's the pick and mix um, counter I mean, in the world of law, that, isn't it? That, it's kind of... It really is. I mean, um, because you know, putting this together, obviously, we've got the statutory test we've got chandler which albeit obiter is is the you know word of, of a very high powered court of appeal but actually apart from setting out the two gateways the gate the, the the meaning of the two gateways is itself open to interpretation and that's been the focus of subsequent case law you then have got which says it, in very simple terms somebody who wants to get a better development um, can use a procurement JR legitimately to achieve that outcome. You've got Wild that basically says, no, they can't, and, and Gottlieb was plainly wrong. In between, you've got the Court of Appeal saying, well, Gottlieb might be wrong, but then because they granted permission to appeal. So you've got Wild saying that Gottlieb was plainly wrong. You've then got Good Law Project, which says Wild went a bit too far. Doesn't actually say he was plainly wrong because Mr. Justice Chamber didn't think he needed to because this was a systemic challenge rather than a challenge to procurement decisions. Yeah. So, effectively, on one level, the criticism of Wild is actually obiter. <laughs> what the hell did make all of that? <laughs> yes. Uh, so um, distinguished on its yeah. facts, the, that that old thing. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, quite. Um, so, I mean, if ever there's a, a point worthy of going to the court of appeal, this surely would be it. So we can have a, a judgment which isn't obiter and which resolves um, the position, because it does seem to be actually when you, <laughs> if, if you try and work out what is the prevailing position, um, 
strictly speaking, Wilde hasn't, you know, there hasn't been a finding that Wilde is plainly wrong. So Wilde still applied in the Wilde context. But in reality, when you've got a, um, a, a judgment on a case of this nature, fully reasoned as it is, I think the safest thing to do would be to, um, if somebody was um, considering whether or not they had standing or whether a, a potential challenger would have standing, um, the safest thing to do would be to take good law projects, the last word, and say it's the position is wild, but with the qualifications set out in yes. in the good project judgment. I, I mean, no disrespect to to Mr. Justice Dove in, in 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 wild when I say that I think this is also the most fully explored treatment mm. of of the question. Um, and, and unsurprisingly, I mean, this tends to happen, doesn't it, with cases that. Mm. You know, case one sets out some sort of test or idea or proposition, uh, and then uh, another case comes along and a party relies on it and it's it's explored some more and, and reapplied uh, and so on. And so, you know, uh, that's exactly how our law develops. I mean, it's how it's supposed to develop, um, is, is one judge assessing what another judge has said and, and, and working on it, as it were. One further point to note, to put what Mr Justice Chamberlain said in context, is that he didn't consider that the MPs had standing. Oh, yes, that's right. We've forgotten that, haven't we? Briefly, at the end of, of, of the bit of his judgment dealing with standing, paragraphs 106 to 107, um, and the, the factors that led him to think they didn't have standing was, firstly, although it wasn't enough on its own, that there were better-placed challenger, namely the, the Good Law Project, uh, and secondly, um, the fact that uh, a, a claimant who was a politician um, bringing a claim of this nature where there was a better place challenger may leave the public with the impression that proceedings attempt to advance a political cause. In other words, that the, the court is being used to, to kick a political football. Yes, um, something of which would be happen. completely familiar in, in the United States, <laughs> but which our, our exactly. court sort of draws its skirts back in horror. Indeed. Indeed. I mean, it clearly can't be um, a basis for precluding uh, somebody from standing because Joanna Cherry, of course, had standing in... Um, the Article 50 um, case. Yes. Uh, so, um, so she was one of the claimants along with Gina Miller. Um, but it, it, in this context, clearly it influenced Mr Justice Chamberlain's uh, decision they didn't have standing. So I think putting it together and trying to synthesise the various judgments, I think gateway one, there's got to be a sufficient interest in the uphold and the procurement regime but that isn't as narrow as a as a derivative or representative interest in the na- nature of uh, of that described by Mr. Justice Dove. That there may be other ways that someone can have a an interest in in the outcome that the procurement regime would have generated. Yeah. Albeit, Justice Chamberlain, I think, was clear that he didn't think um, a, a pure sort of campaign objective was enough. So it's not enough that your residents against hospital or or residence against whatever it might be residence against incinerator um that's not enough um but equally if there's a genuine basis for saying actually had the procurement regime been upheld there could have been a better development and we wanted a better development then that uh, kind of argument advanced by mr gottlieb may be enough for gateway one and then for gateway two we're looking at the gravity of the departure not the gravity of the issue um but if you're if you've got a very high value um, case in a in a in a matter of public interest, such as the Good Law Project clearly was, the you know, billions of pounds being spent on PPE without procurement um, in unusual circumstances, 
uh, that, uh, where there was an allegation of a policy of departure from uh, the, the, the rules, uh, that's the kind of situation where there would be a sufficient basis, irrespective of whether Gateway One yes. uh, was open. Yes, uh, that's sort of paragraph one hundred and four, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I think that's right, and and I suppose it, it's that sort of very step by step analysis which makes me say, in part, that I think this is is the most fully explored. Of the relevant judgments, mm-hmm. but also the fact that that uh, that Chamberlain does go back to uh, uh, rather as we've done today, looking at the history and development of of this these kinds of questions of standing for people who don't have an obvious mm-hmm. and direct interest um, in whatever it is they're challenging. So the question really is going to be, where, well, as you say, where where does this go from here? Um, it 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 might just sit as it is and. Uh, Judges will be able to look at these cases and say, well, I, I think this one is perhaps more akin on its facts to Gottlieb or to uh, Wild or to uh, Good Law Project. It may be, mm. I suppose, that sooner or later somebody comes along and does appeal one of these cases. I'm not one of those three, but but another one. Um, there's no appeal pending in, in um, Good Law Project, as far as I know, is that? I, I'm not aware of no. why. I mean, it tends to be that the claimants denied standing uh, are the most likely to go to the Court of Appeal than defendants who've lost a case where standing has been granted. That's right, yes. And also, I think it's probably fair and not not too sort of political to say that the government's probably quite happy for this not to have any further profile, really. <laughs> um, so... So this is probably not under appeal, but but something maybe. But other than that, I, I don't know. I suppose it is possible that it'll be quite useful for judges to be able to say, well, this one looks more like Wild or this one looks more like Good Law Project and use distinction yeah. on the facts to apply whatever they think is the best approach. Because, um, you know, judicial review generally, I think, over its history, one if you plough your way through Fordham or something, you you do end up thinking... This is a bit like what they used to say about equity. You know, the measure of equity is the length of the Lord Chancellor's foot. And um, judges trying to come to just to use the law well. I mean, I, I don't object yeah. to this, but I, I just say it's, it's an area of law which uh, I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I think this is exactly appropriate to, to the questions it deals with, uh, but that it doesn't have the same rigor or perhaps I should say rigidity uh, 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 in, in its approach. Um, after all, it is really apart from from the, the question of standing in, in the public contracts regulations where you have to have suffered or risked suffering loss or damage, it's not often that the claimant has to show that they belong to some particular class or that, that there's some debate. If you've been knocked down by a speeding car, you, you know, you've got a personal injury claim. It may succeed or it may fail, but you've got one. You don't have to show just you know, you don't have to show in addition to the fact that you're alleging a breach of contract that you were wearing a big hat on the day in question or something. Um, so this idea of standing is kind of a bit unusual. It's it's there, as we know, as, as a sort of filter. Um, and so it's not surprising that it's a bit stretchy, a stretchy filter. I think that's right. I do think the case law is still a little bit unsatisfactory. We've just got so many first instance decisions going in all sorts of different ways. And you can just about reconcile them. Um, but I think if ever uh, one of these cases did um, knock on the door of the Court of Appeal, I think it's almost inevitable that permission to appeal would be granted. Yeah. Uh, and the Court of Appeal looking at this would try and put it all together and, and deliver a judgment which meant 
which, well, which put us out of a job in the sense we wouldn't have to ferret through all the previous cases to try and make sense of them, but the Court of Appeal would do that and then there would be one consolidated rubric as to how you have standing in a procurement case. And I think it it would be beneficial if the opportunity was given to the Court of Appeal to do that. Yes, I think I agree. I, and I don't think I, it wouldn't really put us out of a job because um, <laughs> it, it would make us more confident in our assessments probably. Well, I'm sure you're always yeah. 100% confident in yours. But <laughs> um, but no, you know, one always has to say, doesn't one to a client in these circumstances, that there is some uncertainty. And, and yeah, you're right, that's not satisfactory, especially where from a client's point of view uh where there's a great deal of money at stake uh, as there often is in, in development uh, agreements and it's not just development agreements but they are as we've agreed commonly commonly have to grapple with these kinds of questions of will there be a jr what would happen if there were or can i bring a jr yes the risk profile you know um you know the the, the gld the traffic light approach that yes. the gld operates so the risk of a of a challenge succeeding, also the risk of a challenge being brought in the first place. I think in the procurement context, yes, clear the colour of of the risk profile of will a, would a challenge be brought uh, now has more orangey red elements to it than than green yes, elements to it. For sure, for sure. Well, I think we've probably um, probably covered the ground. Um, unless there's anything you want to add, Charlie. Well, only that I the, only this really, to, to pick up on one thing that you said earlier, David, about these cases tend to come into gluts. There'll be two or three mm. over a period of two or three years, and then silence, um, and which is not a point that has really occurred to me before. But you're absolutely right, and I I do wonder whether there'll be another bus following this bus. Right. Uh, well, I think you know, given our given our um, agreement that that what we need is a nice appeal to settle all these. Uh, these questions, I think this this podcast should be regarded as an appeal for for claimants to um, get JRing, and then uh, we can uh, we can get into the court of appeal and get it all clear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Charlie's what email a, is great available on the, uh, on the website. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Charlie, as always, it's, it's a joy to talk to you. I hope it's been as much of a joy for our listeners to um, or listener to um, to listen to, uh, and. Um, that you know that some at least of what we've said will be uh, either interesting or even beneficial so um if you are listening um thank you and uh, please keep an eye out for any further um keating podcasts we're churning them out like nobody's business these days on all sorts of topics from international women's day to what it's like to be a pupil to public procurement and charlie do you do a planning podcast i know you do have i got planning news for you but that's that's not a pod is it that's a sort of webinar that's not a, that's not a podcast though it is available on apple podcasts now as well as various other formats all oh, right so it sort of podcast counts the podcast as well as uh, a video format well there you go so um all these all these joys await the eager listener and with that goodbye <laughs>